0: You're listening to Dissent Magazine's Belaboured podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen.
1: I'm David Stein. I am a postdoctoral fellow uh, at the Center for Place, Culture and Politics at the CUNY Graduate Center. My research looks at uh, black freedom movements for guaranteed jobs um, and the political economy of structural unemployment from the 1930s to the 1980s.
2: I'm Betsy Beasley. Um, I'm the other co-host of Who Makes Sense. Um, I am finishing my PhD in American Studies at Yale and living in Philadelphia while I do that. Um, And I specialize in the history of capitalism, urban history, and the history of the U.S. and the world with an emphasis on uh, race and gender uh, within those subfields. And um, I'm working on a dissertation just briefly that's looking at the rise of oil field services companies. So these are companies like uh, Halliburton and Schlumberger and Brown and Root, companies that are involved in contracting with oil companies all over the world to um, manage a lot of their logistical processes. And in looking at them, I'm trying to do kind of two things. One is tell the story of how Houston goes from being a city that's really organized around the extraction and the refining of oil to being a city that is, you know, really its identity and its organization is around managing global oil extraction and kind of managing a lot of the logistics and the white-collar service work that goes into, you know, making the oil economy work worldwide. And in the, in the process of this, I'm also trying to look at how this change in the Houston labor market and this change in the organization of the oil industry between the end of World War II and the present um, also reshapes how U.S. companies operate internationally and the role of the U.S. in the world stage.
0: Hi, I'm Sarah Jaffe. I am one of the co-hosts of Be Labored. I am the only non-dissertation writer on this panel. Um, That's a good thing. I, well, a good thing. I'm, I'm writing a book, which is just as horrifying in a different way. Um, mostly you get less time to do it. And a lot of people will read (laughs) it. Well, maybe. Who knows? You cannot actually guarantee me that at all. Um, But so I am a journalist. I write about labor, and I write about social movements and protests and all of that. And my book is about the social movements that have happened over the last, God, I guess we're running six, seven years now since the 2008 financial crisis. Um, which has been, I think most of you are aware, kind of an interesting time in U.S. politics, movements, whatever. Um, and so I've done a lot of reporting on everything from the, uh, the uprising in Wisconsin in 2011 when Scott Walker took away union rights from, um, well, not entirely union rights, but mostly, from public sector workers to the current Black Lives Matter movement. Um, and I will probably talk a little bit about all of that
3: later. Um, hi, I'm Michelle. Uh, I'm the other half of Belabored labored and one quarter of this illustrious panel and uh, with my CUNY colleague over there, part of this CUNY sandwich that we have. I'm at the <laughs> Graduate Center currently, so I'm not a postdoc yet, um, but uh, I'm, I'll i throw you the elevator door talk um, on my dissertation, but it is about um, immigrants and the American left uh, during the McCarthy era, and how um, uh, the uh, sort of legal framing of immigrant rights emerged um, in the 1950s, um, and uh, and I write uh, for uh, the Nation and rant about labor, um, and that's my spare time apparently. So
0: yeah, spare time. Yeah, she doesn't sleep.
3: Right. <laughs> to start with. Uh, Thanks, everyone, for coming. So uh, we're going to go around uh, and do questions. And and since we're all hosts, we figured the best way to do this would be for each of us to pitch a question to the other three panelists, and then we could each take turns being both guest and host. Um, So uh, to start with, generally speaking, uh, people who are involved with uh, progressive or left politics today, um, they generally express an interest in what we think of as labor history or the history of social movements. Um, and, for instance, the history of certain labor unions, um, the history of particular um, civil rights movements over time. And these days we're hearing a lot more about um, histories of capitalism, which, of course, your podcast deals with um, uh, quite uh, quite interestingly and you, uh, and I was just wondering why, what was the motivation behind Who Makes Sense um, bringing that dialogue out of acad- academia to a wider audience and what can people who kind of fancy themselves kind of uh, amateur historians of the left uh, what do they have to learn about the history of the people they hate who are the bosses <laughs> okay. um, I think that's a great question.
2: Um, so we started the podcast with a few aims in mind. Um, we actually met at Cornell. We attended a, a History of Capitalism summer camp that's run by Lewis Hyman uh, at, at Cornell, which is the, the goal behind it is, you know, historians aren't trained with pretty much any quantitative skills and are not trained to look at the, at the kind of resources that businesses produce to then go and write those, those stories. So this was a camp that was designed to teach us stats and macroecon and how to read, a, um, you know, to read an annual report and how to then integrate those into the historical stories that we're telling alongside the sources that historians are more comfortable with. So that was where we met. We were already kind of both on board for this idea of the history of capitalism. And we, um, we started talking about the podcast a little bit later when you know, I was saying there's so much good historical work on the history of capitalism I just wish more people knew about it but it's not realistic for people to you know, read 300 page academic books in their spare time um, and the idea for the podcast was really born out of that. Um, as for why the history of capitalism is resonating and is a thing that's kind of taking off, um, I think there's kind of two two answers to that from, from my perspective depending on the audience that you're talking about. So first there's kind of the audience made up of members of the public and especially our students. Um, you know, since those of us who are you know, getting PhDs or have gotten PhDs are largely teaching undergraduates. Um, and I think calling the study of, you know, t- trying to tell a story of business, labor, and the state together, calling that the history of capitalism I think is in part a marketing project. So this is partly a story of how the university has changed dramatically um, over the past 20, 30 years. There used to be more of an interest in studying the humanities, but there's been a business assault um, on, on the humanities, and there's been more and more of a turn of students to, to trying to look at what, what uh, majors, what classes are gonna get them jobs. And of course, that's a very real concern that these students have. And calling, um, you know, calling a class a history of capitalism class engages with some of the things that they're concerned about anyway, gives them a sense that they're gonna be learning something that matters, And then they get in and we get to teach them about the history of why they feel that way. Um, And I think the the other point here is that it's actually really hard to convince many people, especially many young people, that they care about labor. Labor isn't a word that they're hearing a lot in political discourse. It's not a word that they're hearing a lot on their campuses. It's not a category that is motivating a lot of their campus activism. But they care very much about labor. They care very much about capitalism. They just don't call it that word. They care about debt, they care about the financial crisis, they care about um, whether or not they're gonna be able to get a job after they graduate, they care about the conditions of workers at the stores that they shop at. They just don't think about that as labor and they don't think of history of labor as something that matters to them. So again, I think history of capitalism helps get people in the door and it's a way to kind of channel that energy and to teach them this stuff. The second part, um, and I'll, I'll be more brief, is, is really a, a professional point. Um, there are, some, there, there are some historians who think that the history of capitalism is totally new and that historians have never done anything like this. And I, I would say neither David nor I agree with that. There's a long history of historians writing about business, labor, and the state together. Um, but one thing that is different now and that I think is part of the reason for this new category, this new term, is that it's a lot easier for us to write about many different actors in many different places and many different times because more of our sources are digitized. Because of digital cameras, it's easier for us to get to many archives and do really quick archival trips and then process more data quickly. A lot of things, um, annual reports are on the internet. It's just easier for us to get to more, to more material than it was when someone was having to look through newspapers on microfilm. So in part, the kind of technological speed up that we're encountering as workers is part of what's, I think, pushing, pushing this movement.
1: Yeah, I think, um, like Beth was saying, there's definitely a tradition that we're speaking to and inspired by. Um, for example, I, I often go back to this quote from David Montgomery, one of the one of the founders and uh, leading figures in the field of labor and working class history, who said, in an interview, "quote Although my specialty is working class history, the subject I've been trying to get at is the history of capitalism." And uh, similarly, in an interview, E.P. Thompson, another uh, leading figure in labor and working class history, made a similar point. But he sort of says uh, that uh, you know economic historians like John Saville and Eric Hobsbawm are just better than him at getting at some of these questions. And so, um, so I think there's definitely a, a, a this long tradition that 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 that's gestured to. Um, Likewise, I think it's so important that we, we see both and that the dialectic of labor and capital remains an important prism through which we can understand history. I think the confrontation between the Greek people and the Troika that we just witnessed reveals this so prominently, why, why, it, why it's so important for us to see the many facets of, of, of the lives that we're living. I also wonder... Um, if some of the accounts of the newness of the history of capitalism, like you were saying, Beth, is uh, what it means generationally and what it means for those of us who have grown up in a post-1989 world um, to have grown up alongside neoliberalism and how the history of capitalism can allow us to dispute Margaret Thatcher's Nostrum that you know, there is no alternative to, to the world that we're in. Um, I also think for, for both Betts and I, we both uh, have done our PhDs in interdisciplinary fields and both of us are hugely indebted to the work of economic geography and you know, especially people like David Harvey, people like uh, Neil Smith, people like Ruth Wilson Gilmore. Those, um, those are core thinkers uh, for us who have helped us frame some of our historical questions. Um, for me, also, I come out of the field of Black Studies, and, and the Black Studies tradition that that I'm that I inherited is a tradition that says you need to learn everything you can to try and understand the world. And so, for me, history of capitalism helps get at some of those questions.
0: So, I am not a historian, and this is actually fascinating to me because I've been really interested in the rise of this as a field from the outside, as a as sort of you know. Amateur history historian of social movements, as you guys say, um, and for me, right, the post nineteen eighty nine world, right, that there is no alternative world, or as uh, Mark Fisher writes, the capitalist realist world, right. Um, my one of the undergirding theories in my book is that that ended in two thousand eight, and it's not that we figured out what the alternative is. In fact, we're all probably here tonight because we're working in some way or another on figuring out what that is. But that, like, we've, you know, I I think uh, my friend Paul Mason wrote this in his book, that, like, it became possible to imagine the death of capitalism in 2008. And just by being able to imagine that it is a system that has an end makes it possible for it to be a system that has a history and a system that has a structure that was shaped by humans that were, you know, that were and are people who... um make concrete decisions that make things happen and work in networks I was working on a piece today that actually is going up at Rolling Stone at some point this week about um, some organizing that people in the St. Louis area are doing sort of after Ferguson looking at the networks of the rich in their city, who are these people, where is their money what power are they exerting to keep things the way they are, to make sure that the city of Ferguson, the town of Ferguson, and the town of Florissant, which share a school district, are being deprived of funds that they can only get by writing tickets to their mostly black residents? And that's largely because they gave a massive tax abatement to a company that has one of the 10 richest men in St. Louis running it. Um, and so that is my way of connecting this back all into the movements that are happening right now, which is that, like, People who are organizing right now are thinking about the history and the present of capitalism and the structures and the way it's structured and the people who structure it, and we're not seeing it as just this thing that happened to us now. It's not just, like, the way things are. It's actually a concrete system that then can change and end.
3: Yeah, yeah, I think that's, um, you know, just to wrap up, I think that's that's a really interesting framing of it. I mean, I was, I was going to think that, I mean, my... My conception of it was probably maybe a little just more simplistic. I thought that thinking when you when you historicize something as uh, the history of a system, um, you actually get into the realm of ideas and how ideas motivate people, which I think um, often is lost in a really materialistic concept of how people act in at a certain time or um, in response to certain things. Um, the idea that, Certain ideologies can actually motivate people and shape structures, I think, is actually really important, especially for people who work in social movements and they're constantly trying to uh, spur certain human reactions from people. Um, thinking about where that action comes from as kind of like through the genesis of an idea, um, I think, is really powerful. So, the history of, I mean, I haven't heard about labor. Not so much the labor, I mean, I I hear labor history a lot in in my field, but I also hear like labor studies and cultural studies. And I think when something is called a studies, that's like instant sort of like putting, nailing the nail in the coffin kind of thing and in, in a lot of academic fields because it's often then people tend to think of it as just like, oh, it's a cultural phenomenon or this is the way people act among each other and then it's instantly taken less seriously whereas when you actually think about an idea shaping the totality of the way everyone everything in a society functions I think that's actually more powerful Next question yeah. Yes. Yep.
1: So Betsy, uh, your research deals a good deal with the labor involved in shaping supply chains and and the energy that undergirds much production today. And likewise, Sarah, you've written a lot about workers' struggles in supply chains. For example, you're writing on poor truck drivers. And at the same time, both Sarah and Michelle, uh, both of you have put a lot of thinking and research into struggles around care work and domestic labor, and so I'm hoping you all can reflect on what seeing each of these as points of production and reproduction of value does for our analysis of capitalism.
0: Okay, well, I'm obsessed with the port truckers because the story of that industry seems to me to be like the perfect story of neoliberalism, right? It is this industry that up until the eight, I think actually 1980 was a unionized industry, right? That was, they were pretty much all teamsters and that was deregulated in part because there was a lot of pressure from women and people of color, specifically black workers, that they were being locked out of these unions and locked out of these good jobs. So in order to, you know, give people what they asked for, which I think is kind of a key facet of the last 30, 40 years of of whatever we're calling neoliberalism, is giving people what they say they want in a way that makes everything way worse for us. Um, They deregulated the field, got rid of the unions, made everybody into independent contractors, and now it's pretty much all... On the East Coast, it's pretty much all black workers. On the West Coast, it's pretty much all immigrant workers who have to buy or lease their own trucks, often from the same companies that are supposedly writing them their paychecks. And you literally see paychecks written to people that are $11 because all of their costs are being taken out of it so I mean that's one of the reasons I'm obsessed with court truckers the other one is of course that it is the best place to shut the whole damn thing down um and on the flip side the issue of care work fascinates me kind of in a way because it's the hardest place to shut the whole thing down like nurses and home care workers for them going on strike is very, very difficult because they do care about the people, or teachers. We saw this a lot with the Chicago Teachers Union strike. You do, in fact, care very deeply about the people that you work with. And so the minute that you say, my conditions are awful, the fact that my conditions are awful is actually affecting my patients or students. But for me to shut down production is not shutting down the shipping of goods from China into the US. It's shutting down... In many cases, the the learning of poor kids who basically, you know, don't have a lot else going for them. And so this is, you know, two ends of this. And my fascination as a labor reporter, right, is always still how do we throw a wrench in
3: the gears and make it change? Yeah, um, I second everything Sarah said. Um, the, I, I, I was actually thinking of it more that um, they are Similar in the sense that they are points of enormous leverage in the economy mm-hmm. that often revolve around people who are like truly invisible in our society. So I actually saw a little, maybe a little bit more of a, some a through line between yeah. the, the poor truckers um, uh, and the idea that these are sort of um, uh, kind of like cornerstone industries where um, the the labor is invisibilized, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's sort of. Um, not not really in the picture, um, but it kind of undergirds all other work in in some ways. So um, you know, the, without the um, logistics infrastructure that is done by these invisible immigrant workers, um, you know, you don't the you, you have empty shelves at Walmart, right? Um, uh, but no one ever thinks about you know those workers or what they're doing or what conditions they're laboring under. Similarly you have no career ladder for white-collar, middle-class women um, without their caregivers at home, you know, doing what would have been the second shift 40 years ago, 50 years ago, right? And you no longer have that very narrow conception of... of gender parity in the workplace, when you start to factor in the fact that that is on the backs of the um, total degradation of women's work in the home that continues, right? It's just that it's outsourced to this other population, which is in turn causing a crisis in their own homes because they are not there to care for their own children, which then in turn, you know, weakens their, you know, weakens a whole the the leverage the economic leverage of a whole swath of the economy that then feeds into that very narrow definition of gender parity. So, you know, so I guess, like, uh, you know, sort of bouncing off of that, I I see those two forms of labor as as kind of of a piece because they are the um, expendable people that we can afford to kind of um, uh, not factor into the equation Mm -hmm. when we're talking about the total cost of labor or the total Mm -hmm. social cost of, of certain modes of production.
2: Yeah, I just want a second... Um, Michelle's point about the connections, the yeah. kind of very deep connections between domestic workers and, um, you know, and someone like a truck driver. I think that's totally spot on. Um, and in in my work, um, you know, I'm approaching it a little bit differently. So I look at the oil industry and part of what I'm trying to do is, you know, both kind of politically and in some ways in, in the scholarship on oil as well, there's this idea that oil is a unified product and there is a unified oil industry. We see this a lot in politics, right? Like, against big oil, um, oil prices are up, but what these things... I mean, obviously, I mean, this is, you know, kind of an obvious point, but this is actually a really enormous and very complicated industry. And saying just saying oil prices are up or the oil industry is, um, you know, doing X or Y is actually not that descriptive of what's going on. And so... I look at supply chains, um, you know, from the beginning of the extraction of oil until it, you know, gets into American homes and into American cars, um, to try to figure out who's winning and who's losing and what actually matters about that. And I think this is also a piece of kind of both of what you're talking about, looking away from, um, you know, not focusing quite as much on a history of. Workers in a factory or workers in a single union, but instead looking at a whole chain, gives us a sense of what levers are being moved um, and who's being left out and at what cost. Um, so, in the case of the oil industry, just briefly, you you have the case of the 1970s and the energy crisis in the 1970s, and you know the the kind of popular narrative that we have about the 1970s energy crisis is that oil prices skyrocketed, it really hurt American consumers, and it really just showed how vulnerable the big oil companies were to um, the demands of of OPEC. But when you kind of dig beneath the surface and you actually look at the winners and losers in the energy crisis, um, first off, the, the big oil companies were never actually in that much trouble, but the biggest beneficiaries of the 1970s energy crisis were companies like Halliburton, who continued to do business with the, um, with the members of OPEC, even during the crisis, because the member nations of OPEC needed their expertise in things like how to make um, a drill bit, how to construct a pipeline. These were things that American um, engineers had convinced people all around the world that they were the only ones who knew how to do properly and could do it the best if um, they were hired as contractors to do this work for companies that were producing the oil to then export themselves. And so what you see is a really big shift coming out of the 1970s in how the global oil industry is organized, and these companies like Halliburton, like Brown and Root, like Schlumberger, continue to be the beneficiaries in ways that really changes the labor system in cities like Houston um, and really all around the world. And that's something that you miss if you kind of don't focus on, you know, what's happening with the transport of oil, what's happening with the refining of oil, what's happening with the way that it's marketed and commodified.
3: Are you satisfied is, with our answers?
2: Yeah. Very much so. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think you should make the... Uh, yeah, oh, I think you've yeah. got
1: a bigger point to make, though. Well, I mean, just listening to you, I, I'm reminded of something... We each
3: pose yeah. our questions, though. We wouldn't have to be the ones answering them. That's <laughs> how it works.
1: Yeah. I'm reminded of something that uh, C.L.R. James would always insist on, which is you know Marx's lesson that the most important commodity in capitalism is, is the labor power of the individual. And one of the things that... Selma James also, you know, teaches us is that you know people aren't merely individuals; they're linked, and to reproduce their labor power, they need the domestic sphere of, of the home. Yeah.
2: So I think this is a question that at first appears to be really academic, but I think is actually gets at explaining why this kind of work is so hard to do, and and explains why it's not always what's done. Um, So I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about sources. So one thing that has made writing the history of businesses really, really difficult for those of us who are interested in how business limits the options that are available to workers is figuring out how to do the research to answer these questions. So in my case, when I'm writing about Halliburton, Halliburton doesn't have a public archive where they store their (laughs) records. They're not inviting people to come look through, um, through their private records. Um, they don't want to talk to me. And generally, you know, what I say when someone asks me about sources is Halliburton didn't just refuse my many requests to for interviews and for getting into their records. They just never, ever answered the call. Right. They never like, like I literally ended up on this loop where it was just ringing forever like, after being transferred seven times. <laughs> like, they, no, I'm, I'm a non-entity to them. Right. And they don't they don't depend on me in any way. Um, And I imagine journalists have many of these same issues, right? Um, So how do we talk about how business operates, how business restricts the options available to workers when they aren't obligated to talk to us, and in many cases,
3: they don't want to? Right. Um, Well, having been on both sides of of this uh, sort of, you know, never-ending search for sources, Um, I've had to... I mean, I've I've done both in terms of just I've, I've had to I've I've been able to write articles without citing a single source and really wanted to like footnote an article but then had my editor not say that we don't do that. Um, but I've also had to write extensive annotated bibliographies of you know files that I've maybe only uh, you know read the uh, the index to you know of a, of a you know a, a you know, 48 cubic foot collection of microfilm or something so um, and I think um, it's really easy to get sort of overwhelmed um, with the amount of information that you are given sometimes and then really easy to feel like this knowledge just doesn't exist anywhere because (laughs) someone has either artfully concealed it from public view or that um, this is just lost to history Um, I think um, my my practical advice would be just to wait for someone famous to die (laughs) and then hope that you know that something winds up on a sidewalk somewhere <laughs> um, you know in, in some sort of attic 20 years from now but um, uh, my, I guess my more methodological advice is I guess I, I actually think this is actually a really good opportunity for journalists and academics to actually work together mm. um, I, I I I think I've actually reported a bit um, on the Freedom of Information Act and, and I've, I've yet to actually uh, file my own FOIA request but I feel like I'm probably getting to the point where either for academic work or for, my, um, for journalistic work, I'd, I'd eventually have to do that. And I think it would be, um, you know, the systems of, of archiving knowledge are, are often set up just to, to keep them as arcane and esoteric as possible. Um, and I think that academics have the luxury of being at institutions that, at least to some degree, we like to think really value making some of that knowledge more public. Um, and I know that I've stumbled upon things in archives um, that, I mean, I've just been amazed at the fact that I'm able to handle them in my own hand, you know, like you know, a letter that someone wrote, you know, 100 years ago that's just like literally flaking in my fingers, and and, um, and, and I, I know that I only have privileged access to that because I'm part of an institution, and, and I feel like if there was more partnership between academics and journalists, um, that could actually both enhance the rigor of journalism and also um, make academics um, become kind of liaisons between this sort of... Um, you know, uh, very rarefied world of, of mm-hmm. academic knowledge, where a lot of, frankly, of our you know our most important ideas are produced and debated right before they get out into the public, um, and then taking that to the people before they're able to sort of filter out in those very select methods to influencers, right? Uh, which is often how stuff gets out of academia. So if there is like a better channel to get stuff out, sort of the bottom way of versus you know from top down. I, I would be. Um, all for that, and I think you know. I mean, I, I think CUNY has actually done a pretty good job in terms of just. I think is your your podcast actually funded by some. Oh, okay. So I, thought, I was going to say, like, I thought you got like you guys were able. Your department could, yeah. You know, there's some sort of departmental slush fund that was available mm-hmm. for you, but um, if yes. that exists anywhere, I suggest taking advantage of it. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I feel like like having a having a membership and an academic library is one of the most valuable things that you could have as a citizen. Um, And unfortunately, you know, very few people have that. Um, On the methodological side, um, I think there are actually really exciting ventures, especially emerging around, like, data analysis, now that we sort of move in this world of big data and everyone's, like, an (laughs) armchair analyst, right? Um, I, I think it's actually really interesting just to see how, like, nerdiness can actually be applied in a multiplicity of, of arenas and and um, seeing like stuff like ProPublica come out with like a systematic you know data mapping project of like you know occupational injury, right? I mean, that requires someone with real academic expertise. Um, and so that 's simultaneously a way of recognizing that academics still do do useful things in the world. Um, we still need them for a reason, I hope, um, but also that um, journalists can also do a really, play a really pivotal role in bringing that knowledge into like a more accessible medium. So. Mm-hmm.
0: Oh, God, nobody answers my calls either. <laughs>
3: nobody does.
0: I was just i was just telling a story before we got started. I was recently at the Walmart shareholders meeting, and I got in because um, the folks at the UFCW have a long history of getting in the reporters that Walmart doesn't give press passes to. Um, and so I got in with a proxy share, which they then cannot refuse me because of SEC rules. Um, and so as long as somebody, in my case, a church that does activist shareholding... Um, gave me that, and then they can't deny me access. Um, But then, like, for instance, I rely a lot on the work of academics who have gotten access to Walmart's, um, either like Nelson Lichtenstein got access to Walmart's facilities in China, or Bethany Morton, who has gotten a ton of access to their archives, which she has done largely by not being as publicly, obnoxiously critical of Walmart as I am. Um, So, you know, if I worked at the New York Times, Walmart would probably take my calls, but um, the New York Times, Doesn't want me. (laughs) Sadly. But it is it is a weird way of like, you know, in a in a lot of ways the question in journalism is often just like, well, call them for comment, and if they don't call you back, then like whatever, then you just run with what their workers are saying about them, which is what I do most of the time because that's mostly what I care about anyway. But yeah, when you're trying to get at data that they don't want out there. Not just like a comment on like your workers say that they get paid eight bucks an hour and their manager sexually harasses them and Walmart just doesn't have to answer my call on that. But like do I have to get at data on like, you know, how much are the Waltons writing off in in charitable donations and where is that going? That's actually a lot of work. But a lot of that, you know, data I think you were saying before, Mm -hmm. like a lot of a lot more of this stuff is publicly available. Um, And, again, it is being digitized in a way that, like, you can find a lot of this stuff. Again, the project that I was referencing in St. Louis, they're doing these data maps with, like, all publicly available information. It just requires a lot of work to find and to track and to sort of follow these trails. And at least in journalism, we are so rarely funded to do that work. You are supposed to turn out 800 words for 200 bucks in half an hour, On the newest thing that just happened, and like, yeah. So I often think about going back to grad school. Just the idea of like being able to dig into one subject for like years sounds amazing. But then I think about all the stuff. (laughs) Until you start start doing it, right? Exactly. Then I think about what's going on in the university. Right? It's (laughs) terrible. So both of our labor markets are terrible. It's different, but I do agree with Michelle that I think there's a lot of, of useful ways for us to overlap and intersect. And I, I happen to live with a person who's a rather professional data analyst who's standing at the back of the room. So
3: yeah, also, I get lucky on that one. Uh, too. Like people who do <laughs> math. God, we need more of the. I mean, ha- I know journalists and humanities <laughs> academics. Um, so yes, more. You could all live with a mathematician. <laughs> in that.
0: How many times did I, do I call people and be like, hey, am I, is, am I calculating this right? Did I calculate the size of this bailout properly? Am I doing something wrong here? Is that really $25 billion? Yeah.
3: yeah.
1: I guess for me, in terms of sources, one of the sources that I've relied on a lot in my work is the Federal Reserve meeting minutes, um, of which the biggest barrier, especially in the 1950s, but... Of, of that, the big one of the biggest barriers to entry is just learning what they're saying and what it means, um, and learning Fed speaks. Uh, and so, but one of the things that you can learn from reading those uh, is not only the thoughts of the thoughts and actions of some of the most important and powerful economic actors in the country and world at the time, but also what they thought of labor. And so, you know, I can tell you that in the late nineteen fifties, the Fed was quite concerned over the strength of auto and steel workers and they took actions to, to respond in kind that helped provoke uh, the 1959 steel strike which you know, is, is in a lot of ways is why, why we don't have uh, the flourishing steel industry anymore that, that the US once did. So, so when we talk about the history of joblessness in Baltimore uh, and the uprising that went on in Baltimore a few weeks ago in my mind we we have to see it through a route that goes from the Federal Reserve in the 1950s to Bethlehem Steel to the US support for the Japanese steel industry under the Marshall Plan to, you know, the closing of Bethlehem Steel in Baltimore which was the largest employer for many generations. And so uh, to me that's that source has been has been really crucial as well as some of the individual papers of people who are who were on the Fed and I'm really excited, there's great work by uh, a scholar named Rebecca Marshall who, uh, who is doing similarly exciting work on activism around the Fed. And there's, you know, I'm excited for uh, scholars and, and historians to engage with the Fed uh, as the important political and economic player that, that it is.
0: I the thought the Fed was not political. <laughs> <laughs> I also heard that about the Supreme Court. No. Um, anyway.
2: The, the only thing, yeah, I mean, just listening to your responses, I think one thing that you bring up, David, is how, um, you know, if we do have an organization that is, you know, is federal, is in some ways, um, you know, in some ways thought of as a public entity, those records are more available, but, um, you know, Corporations in the United States are not required to have any records that are publicly available at all. Um, that's not a requirement that we have for them. FOIA requests in the United States don't extend to corporations.
4: Um, there have been proposals for a
3: corporate freedom of information act. So this
2: is what I want to. This is yeah. what I want to talk about. This is fascinating. I mean, I, I just want to say another world is possible um, because. Uh, I um, I ended up doing some research in Norway and I was lucky to kind of get funding to do that um, and I was working on um, the Norwegian North Sea and oil exploration there in the 70s and their version of the Freedom of Information Act applies to companies and so I was actually able to get Halliburton records in Norway that I could oh. not get access to in the United States many of them were in English and um, so I would just say two things one another world is possible this is like a thing. It's called yeah. Norway. There is a, <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, this, cha- this, this chapter is all about how we shouldn't actually look to Norway as some kind of great model right. of social well, democracy. But um, I do think that, um, you know, we, there is a precedent for having this yeah. kind of, you know, just because a corporation is private, just because we've constructed corporations as people in the United States doesn't mean this is impossible. But also, you know, for historians, for um, journalists who are trying to do this work, Sometimes you can appeal to, you know, the legislation of other countries to get some sources that might be relevant to the story that you're telling. Obviously, there's huge financial costs to doing that um, if you do it, end up having to go to the place. So it's yes. not a perfect solution, but it is something that I had never occurred to me as something that might, might be a way exist. to get around some of those things. is why
3: all journalists should have friends in academia who <laughs> <at travel> need <grants laughs> travel grants to go to Norway That's to look great. at some That's random great. archive. I love it. I need I need a travel
0: grant. Um, So we're seeing a whole lot of conversations these days about sort of the end of jobs and the inevitable robot domination of I don't know everything. And most of these conversations sort of leave out the idea of power and how it works. And that these things I was just joking about these things being apolitical, but like there really is, despite what I was saying earlier this framing of of the economy still as a thing that isn't really, that is just sort of a natural phenomenon. And one thing that I think is interesting about sort of studying the history of capitalism as well as studying the history of labor is that we're studying the way power works and the people who have wielded it and how that has happened. And so I'm wondering what does thinking about this, particularly the history of capitalism, Get as a thing that has a history that is shaped by humans, do to teach us about how power operates, and how then we can not only change the way that we talk about these things as if they're just inevitable, but also how we can actually change them.
2: So I think that a lot has changed since two thousand eight. I think there's a lot of um, there's there's certainly a renewed interest interest in thinking about um, you know economics and power and finance um and you know especially debt i do still think though that a lot of the public discourse is centered on abuse and scandal and kind of the really sexy stories of this isn't how it was supposed to play out it's because x y and z happened and that's why this happened it's because someone broke the rules um or it's because the rules were repealed not because this is actually how capitalism works guys there's been boom and bust cycles throughout the history. Like this is not a surprise. Um, it's a surprise how it happened, and, and it's and it's a tragedy. But it's not something that is completely unprecedented or unexplainable or explainable by someone breaking the rules. So what I hope is that the you know a turn to the history of capitalism, the kind of journalism that that you're doing, is trying to change this way of thinking about things. Um, so. I you know I agree with you that capitalism is a system that's changed over time that's powered by people that's created by people, um, but we also know that it's a system um, that has a logic that drives people to do things they wouldn't do if it didn't exist, right? Um, so I mean I think there's many powerful examples of histories that tackle this, and one you know one of my favorites is um, you know a book that came out you know well before 2008, which is Robert Self's American ba- Babylon, which is looking at race and Oakland um, between 1945 and the 1970s. And that book is a really amazing way of showing how the version of state-subsidized capitalism um, that emerged in the 1940s and that lasted in Oakland until the 1970s um, incentivized racism, destroyed the labor movement in Northern California, um, even though at the end of World War II, that was not the writing that was on the wall. That was not what it looked like was gonna happen. so I think, yeah, it, we just need to keep in mind this tension between, you know, this is how capitalism works. This is how, what it's set up to do, but also we do have the power to challenge that, right? We do have the power to say this isn't what what we what we're going to stand for, and we can make, um, you know, we can we can push levers, and we have some control over the economy.
1: Yeah, I think when I think about the discourse about the end of jobs, which has been going on for probably at least you know, 200 years at this point, if we think back to the, yeah. the Luddite longer Rebellion. Longer than I've been
3: working, apparently. What's so
1: that? Longer than I've been working. Certainly. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, if we think back to the Luddite Rebellion and how you know technology has long been a, a weapon that's been wielded to undermine um, worker control over the pace of work and the cultures of, of work. And I think we see that over and over again. I'm thinking about, you know, recently after the, after the term automation was coined um, and it was arriving at uh, for dock workers, uh, they dock workers in the ILWU lost lost some of their uh, some of their ability to shape the contract in the mechanization and modernization agreement. But the ports didn't immediately modernized so to speak right. they didn't uh, necessarily automate but they used that new power in order to, uh, in order to speed up the work process uh, so so I think uh, there's that element uh, of things. I also think when we talk about uh, the, the, the rise of tech we also have to think about some of the work that, that Bets does and think about the energy workers who make who make all of that possible so we have to talk about coal miners. We have to talk about you know where oil is refined. We have to talk about uh, those supply chains uh, that that connect to uh, to where we plug in uh, our gadgets. Um, and I also think in terms of power, we have to fundamentally talk about the property relation and how that, the fact that it is you know illegal to take home the widget that you produce with your working time, how that structures so much of our lives and uh, in in and through the history of capitalism um
3: yeah it's it's, sorry um whenever we record a podcast Sarah's always telling me to take my head (laughs) off my chin so it's my video she does it now um I think power is really interesting because it's uh, it's it's both like the most overused word in academia and it's often like the most misunderstood concept in real life. Um, and uh, and I keep thinking back to this uh, this seminar I took as an undergrad where like the, um, this guy was we were talking about um, it was an early American history class and and we were having this discussion on different relationships between different communities and and uh, and uh, gender relations and uh, and one person raised uh, raised his hand and said, you know to me it's just all about power And then we were like, hmm <laughs> expand on that <laughs> Of course we were all dreading the fact that he was going to expand and then like yeah. drop all these Foucault references and whatever um, but then the seminar leader um, stopped um, him and was like, yeah but like if you think about it that way, everything is about power, and then therefore, nothing is really about power like you get like power is just like such a catch all and it 's a bit of a like a lazy shorthand for talking about like really like critical types of inequality and how they function in our society um, so I just uh, and and uh you know the other the other place I think about power is uh um, it's like that that onion article where like a w- woman finds everything a woman does empowering, and like you know, and, and the idea that like everything you can you can conceive of power in a way that it is uh, such an overused uh, word that it starts to become just like utterly diluted you know it it becomes anyone doing anything that influences something else right so I guess like how do we keep our our definition of power sufficiently clear that we can actually like identify differences between um, different types of power and how they operate but also understand that uh, you know a lot of different relationships that we think of as totally separate and maybe like um, operating autonomously actually are, are all under this broader concept of, like what you were just saying about energy, like energy is power, right? It's Literally. like the physical embodiment <laughs> of power. And so then we think about human relationships and how power is structured between humans, but then that's so much centered around like actual physical energy, right? Yeah. Um, and and so I guess, you know, um, so, so I... I And I guess that ties back to this idea of, like, the end of jobs, and we we, we thought about um, we're aging out of an era which, like, you know, brute force and manual labor and even just, like, forms of warfare, right, are, are seen to be sort of a thing of the past, and we'll never return to that. Now we're coming to an era of, like, a service economy, and everything is about consumption, and even our labor relations are much less adversarial, and they're about cooperation, and, like, economic empowerment is now something that corporations use to describe how how people are treated in society, right? And, and so um, in order to like prevent abuses in terms of the way we think about power, we actually need to be like clearer about what we mean when we say power. So just, I guess I'm just trying to start a movement where like anytime you throw around the word power, like you need to just be able to like qualify that and like identify exactly what you're talking about. Um, and I think this actually comes down to like two different forms of power, which one is about like the power we only identify when it operates in a condition of inequality um, which is what we've been seeing a lot since two thousand and seven, two thousand and eight, right? Um, we We hear people talking much more about inequality now than just this like random concept of like empowerment. Like I feel like this is really empowering. Like now people talk about like, well, no, the fact that you have power in society means that like that actively deprives me of my ability to like be independent and uh, you know, realize my desires and my ambitions, and to like, you know, just sate even my basic human needs. And like, what is the root of that? Right? Mm-hmm. Is it? I mean, is it the fact that people are not politically awakened, right? Is it just the fact that uh, you know we're hemmed in by other forms of inequality that don't have to do with our necessarily with material existence, which is unequal gender relations, right, or or cultural prejudice? But that does have to do with material existence, right? Like,
0: it's not just that I feel icky about being. Exactly. Treated with sexism, is that it actually materially affects my life. Right, exactly. Which right? is
3: why, like, the idea that, you know, we kind of ridicule the idea of like, oh, feminism is just about everything is empowering, even this right. yogurt recipe, right? Um, <laughs> right? but like you know, the idea is that like the way power comes to bear in society yeah. is 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 the fact that some people have and other people don't, right? And so it becomes a very real, tangible thing, even when we're just talking about things that are just seen as like oh, like, you know, women are treated differently than men because, because, because. And and, and so, like, uh, and I think people are starting to think more critically about culture that way, too, because culture does have, like, a material bearing on our everyday existence, so it's no longer just about, like, you know, sort of, like, fluffy, frivolous things or, you know, people's uh, idiotic prejudices that they just grow out of, right? There are ways that that kind of cultural power is structured and reproduces itself, right? And, And especially when we have things like when we study the history of capitalism, we're also studying the history of the way we like honor capitalism in our society, right? And the way it's become this like sort of like totalizing ideology where we think of like I don't know John Galt or whatever. Like there are whole like cult forms of cultural production, right, that are that are based on like worshiping, you know, certain certain um, uh, aspects of our society that that we can almost like no longer conceive of a world without. Um. And then there's the other kind of power, which is actually, like, we often kind of um, don't notice it because it only operates as it should when it's equally distributed, right? Which is the power that we all gain from, like, collective power. And often, like, we don't recognize that except in its absence when, when the other form of power, right, the coercive form of power takes over. Um, and I guess, like, the other, the flip side of the inequality debate is, like, okay, how can we be empowered and also be equal, right? Um, And and that's like one of the hardest challenges. And also like maybe a place where people who lack that other form of power now are best in a position to start constructing, like, you know, that's how social movements are built, right? That's how, I don't know, um, that's how people start thinking about different ways of conceiving of our relationships with each other, I hope.
0: I mean, that's, I think, why I am fascinated in the way that things changed around the the financial crisis, right? The way that we've started to talk about inequality, the way we've started to talk about not sort of, you know, arguments about whether wearing a short skirt is empowering or whatever, which are, like, the most boring feminist conversations ever, but, like, what it means that, for instance, for a really, you know, whatever example that I've been thinking about a lot this week, that the women who played in the World Cup this week got to play on artificial turf when the men had to play, got to play on actual grass, which is much softer and doesn't get as hot and doesn't cause as many injuries and, like, what that actually means when you're out there doing that work, right? Um, The way that these things are material and that they're real and the way, you know, when I think about Black Lives Matter work that's going on right now, the way that it's being connected to economic power and social power that exists. And so when you see something like that woman climbing the flagpole in South Carolina to take down this Confederate flag, like, yes, on the one hand, it's a symbol and it doesn't change anything, and South Carolina is still gonna have all the problems, and oh, by the way, New York City is still gonna have the most segregated schools in the country. But expressing that, taking that as a collective action, right, that was done with multiple people and multiple people's support to say that this thing can change was incredibly important and meaningful to a lot of people. And so, yeah, I think we are thinking about power in a different way, more obviously, still not nearly enough in terms of the public conversation. I am not privy to what is being said in grad seminars about Foucault. But, You're not missing much. Um, <laughs> I might not be missing much. But like, But the conversation that's going on in the pages of The Economist where it's like, Greece is showing up empty-handed to this negotiation and, like, Syriza didn't make, you know, didn't come to a deal. And it's like, do you not understand, like, what's going on here? So on that note, should we uh, see if any of you guys have questions for us?
4: Um, Okay, so uh, this is not a very precise or even well-formed question, um, but what are your thoughts on how, you know, what's being referred to as the sharing economy is affecting labor or what kind of, you know, what what do you think the chapter on, on the sharing economy in the history of capital, capitalism is going to look like? Because, like, on the one hand, you have um, the, the two big ones that come to mind are Uber and Airbnb. Uh, Uber, I think an administrative law judge in California recently ruled that Uber, Drivers are not independent contractors; they are employees, which was kind of has huge implications for that company. Um, and then you have Airbnb, which you know works by people who kind of already have property, uh, renting it to people who have the wherewithal to rent that property at kind of you know inflated rates. And it's actually been shown to cause housing shortages and. Um, you know, in, in certain in a lot of urban areas. So, what are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, kind of just to, to piggyback on that, maybe also just I was interested in that the um, like the physical structure of the internet and the way that we talk about uh, the internet and the cloud as though it's this magical, ethereal, uh, intangible thing, when in fact it has a very real physical infrastructure. Um, after FoxCon, um, I find that even a lot of people on the left uh, talk about the internet and, like, obviously we have to use it, but uh, talk about the internet in this kind of like magical way that like Apple wants you to think about the internet when, in fact, it's like quite real and quite grounded like in physical reality. Yeah. World. yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I was just curious if you had anything to say about that too, and that goes along with the sharing economy. Um, it's sort of piggybacks so on that a little bit, <laughs> sort of, um, you know, in alluding to the kind of changes you've seen in the, the I guess, the cultural consciousness since 2008, um, and the various movements that have arisen, do you see any kind of infrastructure or organizing being built up between the different movements themselves? And if so, is that happening on the internet?
0: So I have a question about teaching, Um, since you're all in some way teachers, whether it's in the classroom or as a journalist or through podcast, um, is there one major piece of information or paradigm or analytical skill that you most want to teach people about capitalism? What is it? All right. Should we go down the rail? David, I'm looking at you. (laughs)
1: Wow um, well, I guess I'll start with the physical structure of the, the Internet. I think uh, we've gestured at it, but I think like, like, like we've gestured to, the physical structure of the Internet relies on labor of actual people making factories, making servers, um, like you mentioned Foxconn, you know also also um, there's a great dissertation by a scholar named Jake Peters on the labor geography of <coughs> coders um, who, uh, who make open source software. So this interesting way in which I know, you know Sarah has talked a lot about how fun is deployed uh, in, in the workplace. And this the story that the scholar Jake Peters tells about coders it definitely reveals some some of that. Um, yeah and in, and in terms of the sh- the sharing economy, I think you know one of the things we, we need to talk about is a wage squeeze that that has gone on at the very least since the 1970s and how that's compelled people to stretch their working day in, in different ways so I think uh, you know bo- both both uh, 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 uber and um, and uh, and airbnb uh, Derive immense um, constituents to, to participate in them because be, partly because of that wage squeeze and people having having their working day stretched and I think I, I have a lot of skepticism that that it will you know, it, it will alle- it, in the long term alleviate any of those any of those challenges. Come back to me on teaching. Okay. Something <laughs> to say, but I'm thinking. It's a hard question. It's
2: a great question. Yeah. Hard one. Um, so yeah, it's it's funny. David and I were literally just talking about the sharing economy, like <laughs> like this afternoon. Um, and I think it's I mean, it's obviously a really complicated point. I mean, I think. I think there's a way of thinking about it as a total good, um, which is certainly how Airbnb wants you to think about it. Um, it's just sharing, and it's great, and now it connects you with people all over the world. Um, and there's also a way of vilifying it by focusing on, um, you know, the, the concrete impacts that it does have um, on certain urban neighborhoods, and certainly the effects that it has on, um, you know, on unionized hotel workers, for instance. I mean, it's certainly, um, it certainly it it makes a difference there. However, I mean, I think like anything, it's, I, I tend to think of it as, like David said, really a symptom. I mean, it, the attractiveness of Airbnb is a symptom of, on the one hand, the fact that um, the, the, the insane debt that people live with, um, the, the wage crunch and the, um, you know the, the extreme constriction of wages that's happened— since the 1970s, the need to make every little bit of, whether it's property or a rental unit that you occupy, count. Like, it, it's, I mean, there's a reason that it that it's really working for a lot of people. Um, and I would say the, the problem with that is the people who are profiting off of it, whether that be, um, you know, the people who are running Airbnb, who are taking huge cuts of that revenue without, you know, as David said earlier, really doing very much. Um, or whether it's, you know, the kind of... Um, the like big um, landlords that are buying up units that they're just using as Airbnb units, which is obviously um, a big trick, but I think the other side of that is that it also is a is a symptom of um, you know the ways in which travel and lodging are increasingly becoming luxury goods, and in a lot of cities, especially this one, um, being able to. Come and stay here is often two, three, four hundred dollar a night expense, um, and so I think Airbnb is also resonating with people because of that, because of that reality that it's not, um, you know, travel is increasingly becoming this luxury good. So yeah, I don't have any great answers for that, but I think it for me, I think the sharing economy is a really fantastic example of everything that's wrong. <laughs> How to fix it? I don't have as many great great ideas about. Um, the physical structure of the internet i i don't i mean i think you're i think you're absolutely right i remember hearing um someone talk i think i read an article maybe about um you know the people who actually scan the pages of google books to i mean it's it's like a it's a job right <laughs> um i think that's it's certainly something that um that the left should should focus um its discourse around kind of shedding light on um you know, the cloud is not a cloud <laughs> that is, right. like, naturally produced, and we need, to, we need to think about what's below the surface here. Um, and I think some of that work is starting to happen with um, a lot of attention being focused on companies like Amazon in particular. Um, I think there's a lot of focus on that. Um, I don't have very much to say about infrastructure between movements uh, after two thousand eight. I think it's all going to land on your shoulders. Oh but god! We're waiting <laughs> for the book to drop. And then yeah. It, yeah, I'm not finished with it. And I feel like um, maybe we should all circle. I mean, maybe we should all circle back at the end to do the, our um, the, teaching? the
0: teaching. Yeah, that's questions. a really because interesting question. We could all be in succession. Yeah. Um, we're
3: procrastinating. It's a good that's one. A, I'm not the tacting I mean, yeah. Right at, yeah, no,
0: it's it's yeah, it's an interesting question. So I put this in my notes earlier when we were talking about robots. Um, One of my favorite little stories is I was doing a story on, I talked to a guy who worked at Glock in Georgia making guns, and he worked for a temp agency, not for actually directly for Glock, he worked for this temp agency. The temp agency was called Automation, which I found hilarious, right? Because like so much of these things that we think about are being done by robots, they're being done by workers, they're just being done by workers somewhere else that you can't see. Um... And that connects both to talking about the physical structures of the internet, but also like the sharing economy, right? Is that these things that we think of are super new or really not. Like Uber drivers, that's the same economic model that the port truckers have faced since 1980. Literally the same exact economic model. You drive a vehicle that is yours, that you you are required to pay all the costs for, you are paid per trip with no hourly weight. Like, it's exactly the same thing. It's just now new and fancy and somehow a sharing economy because it's got an app attached to it, which, as my friend Mike Consul wrote a wonderful column at The Nation, makes it really easy for you to turn it into a co-op and get rid of the bosses entirely, because all you need to do is throw in enough money back to your co-op to hire a web developer to run your app.
2: I also um, think, Sarah, just
0: to, yeah. to you briefly, I
2: think the other big difference between... Uber and the port truck drivers is that the Uber drivers are a lot more visible to more of us, which necessitates something like a logic of a sharing economy to make it, oh,
0: it's really fuzzy and wonderful. Although on the flip side of that, the port truckers can shut down a hell of a lot more if they go on strike. Um. So it's a, a question of,
3: again, where are the levers of power? It's an interesting set mm-hmm. But then set of the things. way they exert their power yeah. then uh, does it in a way that pisses us off, right? Whereas uh, Uber can deploy, uh, you know, like tens of thousands of its uh, drivers to a protest or something. You know, just the way – I'm just thinking of the way things would play out in the media, right? If there was, like, a gigantic uh, port shutdown. I mean,
0: in any case, when you do a gigantic strike, you have to do some work to make sure people are on your side. But, like, <laughs> but the point – that I'm making a guess about the sharing economy is that like what it's doing is repurposing very old structures of labor, like piecework, into something new and fancy that's like new and shiny because it's attached to an app that happens on my smartphone or something. And that's you know why I think these questions are really mixed is that we have to think about the internet as not like this external other thing over here that is magic like. It has a history, it is developed by people, it is maintained by people with a physical infrastructure. Um, It is often maintained by horrific labor conditions. Um, One of my favorite, and by favorite I mean story that literally gave me nightmares was um, Adrian Chen went to, I believe, Thailand interview people who filter off the photos of beheadings and other horrifying things from your Facebook page and these are this is a job again that most people assume is done by a piece of technology that is actually being done by people who make 2 bucks a day looking at truly horrifying stuff so that we don't have to and that's like my best image of the invisible internet, and we use that. I used it as an ARG piece on Belabored, so I have the link somewhere on on the Dissent website if anybody's looking for it and really wants to have nightmares. And um, the question that is unfortunately being dumped entirely on my shoulders: the short answer is yes, absolutely. There are very, very concrete networks between protests movements. Um, organizers. There are people who have cycled through many of these things and are sort of learning as they go. There are organizations that exist specifically to connect people from one movement to another. Um, and, And one of the things I'm trying to do with my book is sort of to talk about the ways that this has happened, the sort of things that were happening in between the moments when, like, Occupy explodes onto your consciousness, right? Or the way that, like, Black Lives Matter explodes with Ferguson except it really didn't. It really has been being built since you know for years and it's there are very specific networks that have that managed to make ferguson blow up the way it did because they were there to support it when it happened so um i'm not going to take up everybody's time talking about this because i could talk about it for the next year which is why i'm writing a book but if you (laughs) want to talk about we'll be having drinks later
3: um yeah no I, i i second third everything everyone said um um, I actually think, you know, this, this trifecta of questions, and I'll try to answer it all in one fell swoop, but I, I actually <laughs> thought they were all really in- interconnected. because um, yeah. We just did a, I mean, our last podcast was about how uh, labor organizers can use the internet, right? Um, there, there could be a labor organizing app that's portable and, and open source um, yeah. in a way that Uber precisely is not, right? Um, right. Uh, and so I guess... Yeah, I would I would say that yes, the internet is is made up and powered by real people and real social forces, but um, we also have to like veer away from thinking about tying internet too much to the personalities who currently wield power mm-hmm. in it as well, because it also is in some ways a truly open open medium in, in which we it, it, it's um, you know it can be it, technology can operate as a vessel for for good or for evil. Um, and, uh, and I think the sharing economy comes down to that as well because, as you said, there's always been kind of a sharing economy or there's been an ethos of, like, you know, people have, like, an intuitive sense of when things need to be redistributed and, and on what terms, right? Um, the way the sharing economy is conceived right now... Is not actually sharing anything, right? It's it's a way of actually privatizing things and then pretending like that relationship is actually sharing when I'm actually charging you a fee right. for something that you would have gotten via couch surfing seven years ago before they lost their operating license or found themselves mm-hmm. to be unviable because they lost their sponsor or whatever. So, um, and and I think, um, and I think there's like an, an unease around the way we talk about money because on the one hand, people are kind of like have like this like s- sort of like schizoid attitude towards it where it's like we want to feel like we're not doing anything for materialistic reasons but then that only creates more pressure right to internalize and to degrade certain forms of real value, right? Uh, and and think of it as something we're just giving away, right? Like you you haven't referred to what's what we call like emotional labor, right? Mm-hmm. In in uh, in both academia and and I guess like in, in, in popular feminist history. right? Everywhere, um, which is uh, you know, and and I think I've I've, I've actually you know heard um, I've used that term and then people have been like, wait, what? What does that mean? And so you know, people don't think of the don't necessarily pair those two words together um, a lot until they actually start thinking about like how those two things go together, which is the fact that like so much of um, labor that's done in our economy is is um, either undervalued or just like rendered um, you know, just out of sight because um, it's it's expected to be done for free, mm-hmm. right? as a labor of love by often women, right or people yeah. who are, doing things in a, in, from a position of less power, right? And I guess this ties back into the power conversation. It always does. Um, right. It's all about power. <laughs> um, and uh, and so, right, like when I wrote about uh, Uber, I mean, I think one of the key sort of legal arguments that they are framing that they, they were sort of like hanging their entire business model on this idea that The app, right, is just this neutral technology, and it just exists as a facilitator of a business transaction, right? Whereas, like, Uber isn't making money. They're not capitalizing on your labor, right? It's just that we're providing a service to you, Right And then we're, we are letting you use right with some caveats in this contract relationship right. benefit from this great technology that we've sort of gifted to you, right, and that's the way this idea of sharing has essentially been worked, so that the people who are actually privatizing the things that really should be shared right across people, they're privatizing the commons. Right? they're privatizing even our public infrastructure the way that Google, when they have their Google buses are using the roads and the routes that, are, that were once done by municipal buses right? and, and it's a way of privatizing a certain social infrastructure that we didn't realize was about sharing until we realized that we can no, it's no longer ours to share the people who are sharing it, allegedly, right now are the ones who are taking away our right to share Right, and so some things are not yours to share, right? Or some things belong to everyone, um, and we don't have like a way of thinking about money or or um, the the way value works in our society to really understand where real value is, and therefore we don't know what's sharing and what's stealing. <laughs> so, well, I'm gonna go back to the
2: teaching question. Yeah. Um, okay. So I can start. Um, I feel like the one thing that I try to you know that I really want to imp- uh, impart to my students which is a very very simple idea and it's something that you know anyone who has been involved in labor movements is very familiar with but that still like I feel like still gets to the heart of how we talk about the economy in the United States is that whenever you're talking about capitalism the number one question that you should ask first is you know, who am I actually talking about? Who's winning and who's losing? Who's who's gaining and who's expen- who's expense? This is like so knee-jerk to most of us in this room, right? But I think this is still something that, when you read, um, when you read any kind of popular media, whether it be the New York Times, anything from NPR, mostly those questions are not being asked. There's kind of like a point-counterpoint about. There's this new technology. There's Uber. Um, this is why it's great. Oh, here's the counterpoint. Okay, it's interesting. Like, and I'm not, I'm not trying to denigrate that journalism. But I'm, you should. I'm, that's not what I'm trying to do. You should. You can we do can. that if you like. But, I mean, I think what's missing from that from that question is any kind of class struggle, right? Yeah. And so I don't say those words to my students because that's terrifying um, to them. But, I mean, I think this is a way of... I, I say it later in the semester exactly. um, but exactly. I think, <laughs> but I think it's I think it's a way of of getting them to think, oh, this is you know this is not just a question about what's good for the American economy, which is what they're used to hearing on the news, which is what they're used to hearing from President Obama um, but you know who you know whose economics is this good for and who yeah. is it good for me? Yeah.
0: That actually gave me an answer to that question, which is I want to teach everybody some media literacy, mm. um, which is, it? you know, in the, in the way that I would explain that, is like, again, understanding sort of the relations of power that underlie the media structures. So NPR, which was, you know, founded as our wonderful public media system, has in reality been sort of strategically defunded every year by the Republicans so that it has to rely more and more on corporate underwriters couple that with this sort of ideology of balance, which means that you ask one person from one side and one person from another side, and there's no sort of thought that there might be more than two sides to an issue or that the two sides don't have equal strength and weight. Um, And so, yeah, so I do, you know, this goes back to sort of the earlier question about sources. Like, a lot of the time, I don't care about asking the rich people because they're always asked. And so, you know, my... uh, my old boss, Laura Flanders, used to always say, we don't do balance, we are the balance. Mm. We existed to bring in those other voices. But yeah, so I, my question is, or my question, my thing that I would like to teach people is to sort of think critically about the media that they're consuming and how it's produced.
3: Yeah. Um, I, uh, when you actually said that capitalism is something that people want to learn about on campus now, I, I was actually surprised because I feel like when I, I've taught um, undergrads before and one thing that uh, they're often not even familiar with like terms like mm. capital and labor um, but I also taught um, in the CUNY system and a lot of these uh, kids you know were coming out of um, history classes in high school that didn't really prepare them to like you know think about systems and ideologies like like in that way um, and I guess like one of the sort of segues that I used when I was sort of introducing like my U.S. history class is just um, asking people to think about whether or not they had ever had a job, and if so, do they think of themselves as workers? Mm-hmm. <laughs> do they ever call themselves workers? And um, and I would actually get really mixed responses to that because even though most people, right, had maybe had worked probably two or three jobs at that point, because dealing with pretty low-income student population, um, or. You know, they um, they they worked, so they their, their schooling had been delayed, so they couldn't even go to college for a while because they were working. Um, uh, but they they often didn't, you know, think of themselves as workers, right? They never used that term and applied That's it to themselves. Um, uh, and uh, and then I asked, I would ask people like, well, um, I would have you know, I would have a first period class, and, and I would ask people like, so um, have you guys bought anything today? And people would be like. Oh, yeah. Well, I guess I, I did. I bought, like, five things already because I bought my MetroCard fare, and then I bought a Starbucks on the way here, mm-hmm. and then, you know, I went to the vending machine, um, and I, like, paid my tuition bill, and I paid the library fine. You know, so, like, and, and the, there are ways that, like, money operates in people's everyday lives that they don't often kind of get to step back and think about, and I think that's what, that's what I hoped that, like, a classroom setting could bring, which is, a, like, actually kind of afford this a little bit of isolation and distance, just sort of, like a moment of the day, um, to, like, contemplate these things. So um, if I could teach, you know, it's, a, it's not so much a pedagogical question, but it is just, like, giving people room to step back and think critically about, like, why am I doing what I'm doing? And, and the things that we do often just, like, mindlessly, right? And I don't use that in a pejorative sense, it's just the idea that we don't think... About what we're doing, a lot of the times, like it can actually be like a window to political consciousness, um, because people think, "Well, I didn't have to buy a Starbucks that morning, but I did. I didn't even think twice about it because why?" Right? And and so, uh, right? And then I talk about class struggle. No, just kidding. <laughs>
1: um, yeah, I agree with uh, all of your responses about about teaching. I think one thing for me, and it makes sense. Uh, Saul, who, who, who was our guest um, on the vagrancy episode, so you should all go back and listen to that episode. One thing that I think you know, you'll know very well is the importance of denaturalizing the history of capitalism. And in fact, you know, if we think about how the idea that a mode of material provisioning has been replaced with this idea of economics, and which often happens through the Scottish Enlightenment, right? which has then been assumed to say that, okay, now capitalism is the only way in which we can uh, provide for a mode of material provisioning, as opposed to saying there could be all sorts of ways in which a society distributes food and shelter and, and, and the necessities of, of life. Right on.
0: I think it's a good note
2: to end up. Yeah. All right. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody.
1: This life is hard, so hard, I must go. 825, hell no, we
3: can't go.
0: You've been listening to Descent Magazine's belabored podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Until next week, join us online using hashtag belabored.